Hi and welcome to Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in architecture and urban design more accessible. Today's episode is an interview we made with Santosh Kumar, a practicing architect, educator and researcher. He is the founder of the studio Ketam's Atelier Architects, an NGO thinking hand. First, Santosh explains his background and how he came to found an NGO and then gives his view on the state of sustainable design before providing an insight into his PhD work on the topic of flooding and floating cities. As we live in Sweden and Santos in Austria, we had to conduct the interview over Zoom. Therefore, the audio quality unfortunately isn't the best, but we hope you will still be able to appreciate the content. I'm Katharina. And I'm Matthias. We hope you'll enjoy today's episode. Let's talk about cities. We're really happy to have you here and we're we're happy that yeah our ways have crossed and that you are our very first person that we can interview for the podcast. It's the first and foremost I would like to say thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show you on your show wonderful show. I've been listening to your podcast. I think it's a wonderful uh, thing you're doing. So I think it's a great start. I don't know how you started I would love to know it. Uh what what motivated to you do this one because I know how tough it is to do this kind of activities because you don't get any money or you know it's all the satisfaction the knowledge you're trying. I think uh, what you just said is that uh, why you also what drives you to do your work is also I mean it started out as a hobby and we're obviously um, coming out from the professions that we studied and and like that Matthias studied architecture and I urban design i think it's just this interest to learn more and then also a really great platform to invite someone like you and to um you know we studied but we're not experts in um flooding cities for example <laughs> we will dive into <laughs> deeper into that and then i think it's it's nice to just continuously learn and also um you know i always feel like when i can explain a topic to someone who's not studied urban design for example then i have also really understood it because i um managed to explain it in a way that also people who didn't study it understand and i think that is kind of the um the thing that i'm interested in to break it down into easily understandable topics mm -hmm. yeah. and and it's also i think um probably you know the feeling of we are learning a lot when we study and when we practice and we realize that it's important things that we learn and we want to share them uh, with people outside of the profession. And for that, you have to try some way, whether it's a podcast or a blog or a practice or um, as you are doing with, with the thinking hand um, to, uh, to teach and to spread that knowledge. Absolutely. I think uh, I totally agree what you're saying. Uh, The reason uh, why I started uh, an NGO it was like a strong start, I would call it, because uh, I was teaching uh, in, in schools uh, as a guest faculty. Uh, I've seen like a lot of students struggling a lot because of uh, because the amount of students we have in one school is enormous. Like you know, mm -hmm. I can't blame the universities also because they have their own issues, like you know, the kind of funding they have. I think it's very complex to, to kind of explain, but where the government uh, doesn't have that much money to sponsor or you know, do scholarship or you know, do some kind of more funding for the universities. At the same time, uh, students also pay fees, I think, mm -hmm. which is also pretty high. And uh, when you get into the schools, uh, it becomes tougher because the number of students are pretty uh, huge. And faculty you have about one or two or three people like Handling 80, 120 students in a classroom is very difficult. So me as going as a guest faculty, it's like my time is a very short time, like, you know, spending a few hours. And uh, when I was there, like, you know, because uh, I started in India and I was studying in Europe and I came back. So there was always excitement in the students to learn from the people who go out 
because you have more exposure. And I got a chance to meet all the great architects like you know Zahadid, Wolf Briggs, uh, Stackwork Printer, uh, you name it, uh, Ali Rashid, Greg Lenin. So you keep on like Peter Cook. So it was a great opportunity for me to even Tom Maynard. I think meeting them was uh, pretty impressive, and not just in the sense like because I'm seeing them. I think the kind of the methodology they teach, mm-hmm. the kind of explanation they do. So. I always have a feeling that why can't I share the same thing with students or the colleagues or the friends? So I had an opportunity to meet this and I was trying to show whatever I can to the students. Mm-hmm. So what happened is like when you have this much amount of the students, uh, then you need to give more time. So as a faculty, you have a very less time to be there. And uh, I just started uh, my practice. So in this process, like when I was talking to a lot of students, I was just going for, I think, almost three schools. And I'm spending like three hours. So when students student ask me, like, you know, we need more time, like, you know, how how can help us? Like, you know, if students are asking a lot of questions. Then I thought, like, then I took the students to be whenever I get a time, like I said, like, why don't we meet in a cafe? Because in the school we can't do it anymore. I can't do more because there's the next class going and people have mm-hmm. to move. And I don't have a time to stay there. I have to figure out another time to give them. So I was meeting them in parks. Uh, sitting in a park and doing it. I was taking them to the cafes, uh, like 20 students, 15 students, depends, like in the groups. So I was teaching them in that and sitting there for hours. Like, you know, just imagine like you're sitting for hours in a coffee shop with 15 students mm-hmm. and how, how strange it is. Like, you know, the person who is the waiter is like really strange. What are you doing? Like, you know, you're drinking one coffee and staying for hours. Like, <laughs> so we had to find another place. I don't know. After one school, second school happened and, you know, the other school started contacting me, like, you know, could you meet you and, you know, could you talk? I was like, okay, this is getting really uh, big now. And, you know, people want to talk and people want to discuss about architecture. So then I decided, like, you know, why don't I, then I took an office space and uh, I kind of bought for rent. And then, the meanwhile, I was registering my office. I started that. Then I thought, why don't my friend also discussing? I said, like, I want to start kind of making this workshops. And somebody suggested me, I think my brother, somebody said, why don't you start like an NGO? Then we started. What could be the name? Because we are thinking and we're going with your hand. So why don't you take your hand? Because all the ideas, what you generate in your head, translates to your idea and it goes with your hand. Because we are designers and you know, we are architects. Mm-hmm. So why don't we give that name? So, so that is where uh, it started. You know, it took me almost six months to register because registering an NGO in India is very and uh, then we registered and you know we started with uh, workshops and now we almost 13 workshops going mm-hmm. under one. then in, within the process we also started uh, international competitions then we started talks uh, we started exhibitions so one by one added to it it's been almost like six years now and it's wonderful to see like how uh, we have a f- around 50 people working as a volunteers and within that they are coming from different backgrounds. I think most of them are from architecture students, some of them are from uh, economics, uh, some of them are more into psychology. Mm-hmm. So every workshop uh, we're doing, and you know, we had, had people coming into the picture. Like, now I think uh, from Europe also, we're getting some emails and phone calls and this, we would like part, part of it. Yeah, I was so just, just thinking that, that it's, um, the, the, on the one hand, it's very interesting uh, that you can bring the perspective that you have gained in Europe and uh, also studying under uh, some very well-known and great architects back to India. But it's also very interesting to be able to do it um, the other way around. Absolutely. And I think uh, it's it's always fortunate to come to study in Europe or US because very less number go out to study. I think even I come from a normal middle-class family, lower middle-class family. I was kind of, I would say, lucky at the same time, really working hard. Then I did my master's in Gawante. So it was a great experience to learn these things. Uh, I, I didn't come to do master's to just for a degree. I came here to get an exposure because the way you think, you know, the way you kind of imagine, you know, the kind of motivation you get, uh, the, the knowledge you get from the schools is enormous. And I always say to to European students also that I think European students are more lucky, I would say. People ask me why, how, but that's always a question. Because 
where I come from, uh, studying, going to, getting an education itself is very hard. And compared to US and Europe, we don't have that great time. And we are really struggling, you know, we have to travel a lot. I travel for hours to reach my university because there are very few schools uh, mm-hmm. I'm studying. And I think I tell European students is that you don't have any problems. And the problem is you don't have any problems. So only things you solve them. In our case, we have problems and we need to face the challenges. So somewhere I think it's always in your head, like you have to really work hard. You know? So even same case with the projects. On top, you have so many principles. I, I have my own principles to the good architecture, like how to do. Because when you learn from the schools when you go out, and what you implement is the two different factors. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a education and the practice. There's a huge gap. And I always want to fill that gap with what I learned from the universities. How you solve it's always very, very interesting. It's always challenging. So through the office, we kind of doing that, I would say. With the NGO, we kind of empower, share, and educate people. Mm-hmm. Especially more focus is on urban work because they are lacking a lot uh, yeah. uh, and uh, they need a lot of support and we get a lot of support from them because uh, we work with them kind of have this uh, you know the kind of inspiration they have they really work hard even though they don't have anything but still they have to do the work so somewhere I think that is also motivating back to us mm-hmm. so that's how we run our NGO and the studio together so I think it's both go hand in hand the research innovation, what we do, we share it with NGO and the NGO shares with the communities. So the communities again help us to do more things. I want to build the bridge to um, one of the focus, like a focus that you have in your research now, which is also climate change and the consequences that come with that. And as you now said, you've studied um, in India, but you also studied in Austria. Now you're teaching in Austria sometimes and you're doing your your research. And how do you, in your perce- uh, perception, how has the academic discourse changed throughout those years when back you, when you studied in India or also Austria um, to today? Um, also in your teaching experience when it comes to climate change and potential solutions through architecture and urban design? Okay, that's, that's a wonderful question, actually. And I think the, there are two sides of it, I would call it. One side is like in India, I think we are still not ahead as Europe or America. We have our own curriculum and we have to follow the curriculum. And, uh, and somewhere I feel like the number of years, we, we have this five years course, bachelor course, and uh, we have all the subjects covered. And for me, that itself looks like five years is more, but that's not enough for studying architecture or design because it's so much that can't learn in this few years and it's a lifelong learning process and I think even I would say like you know students also need to learn from outside not just from the academy the self-learning is more important than the university's teaching and uh, there needs to be a lot of exposure to the in terms of books in terms of the, the work going on outside and already in India a lot of, lot of crisis going on in terms of urban population, too much construction, materials. I think somewhere there is always this climate crisis and the material crisis. But I think somewhere we, as an architect, forgot to identify that. I think I think somewhere now I feel like architecture has, and design has changed more, uh, like I would call it as stent, like how you have a hard uh, problem, then you try to put a stent to it. And it's not a permanent solution. If you have a heart attack and, you know, you go to a hospital and they put a stent and, you know, kind of, it's a, not a permanent thing, it's a temporary. I think that is what happening with the cities and architecture. Somewhere I feel like, you know, we, we lost the basics uh, because I go to a lot of schools as a guest and critic. And, you know, I think sometimes we fall into this computerized world and this too much digitalization. I think I'm not saying you should not use computers or tools of technology, but I think the 
that's a secondary tool that could not be a primary tool. Mm-hmm. I think design has to evolve from various other aspects. Like, you know, you need to know the basics. For example, you need to know how to draw. You need to know how to you know, translate your ideas onto the paper. So I think it's inside, outside, and outside, inside. Somewhere I think that is missing. Like, people thinking in the schools, uh, what I've seen, uh, in my, my, it's my opinion. I think people think twisting forms, you know, turning mm-hmm. forms, having this superstars influential architecture on, on students. And they have the thing like that is architecture. I think that's really harmful for for cities. Like, mm-hmm. I think I always uh, question myself. Like, you know, all the star architects have the idea, which are really they have their style. Like, for me, style is not architecture. I think style is one with, which fits with the climate, the lifestyle of the, the climate style. Like, you know, how the climate is changing here. So one of the reasons I would notice there is no climate response to architecture. In terms of schools, I think we are in this whole curriculum. I think the curriculum has to change as per the situations. We need to bring awareness about the climate crisis. We need to bring awareness. That, you know, again, we are not losing the quality of space we create just because we are trying to focus more on the climate. And there's always, we fall into this category of uh, what do you call this? If you go into that direction, you forget the other direction. There are many directions. I think you need to be very careful about thinking about all, all the points and still we are not sure like that's why I say like every line I think I wrote to myself before, like it says every line you draw should have a meaning to it which means it's not just the, the drawing it's a metaphor like you know. so I, I do tell the students and try to motivate them uh, and the same thing when I come to European schools when I come to European schools I think again there is a lack of basics uh, in some things like you know for example if i'm talking about historic buildings you don't have much knowledge of it if i'm taking a reference if i'm giving a project reference to a project they don't know about it i'm not talking about young architects or you know superstars like recent times but i'm talking about old uh, teachers you know old architecture i think uh, history is a very important thing in architecture because it tells you where we are missing you know where we made faults I think somewhere I think that is kind of missing. And again, I think it depends on school to school, like it's teaching with the students, but I think students are also very eager to learn. And yeah, I think uh, the students visited to India, uh, seeing the place of India, people were building this classroom. So students get to know the place well. So they never seen the place before. Uh, they got a cultural shock, but they got to know how people behave, uh, the climate, and the food they eat, uh, the material available. I think somewhere uh, they're more conscious, like, you know, they're seeing on site, you know, seeing, feeling it. And uh, I think they had a wonderful experience uh, when they're doing this. I think this is what is very important. I think sitting in a studio, doing something, going out there, seeing, studying properly on the ground, the local level. So that is what I feel kind of uh, missing. Uh, at the same time, I think it's all this learning process. There's so much to learn. It's interesting that you mentioned also the vernacular architecture of India, and perhaps that is uh, an issue in Europe in a way that it's such a cosmopolitan culture that there isn't much focus put on the vernacular. Europe is more the, the continent of the uh, cities of the Industrial Revolution and what has come since then. And what was before is seen as as the countryside and most people move to the cities and don't really concern themselves with the countryside so that's a a sort of lost history in a way but what i also wanted to ask as you have the experience from from angevante and from these star architects that also have studios there um, is what approach there is there or what approach there was at least during your time there how much is climate change discussed and how much are these vernacular solutions discussed as what tends to come out of these studios that are at a very high level is oftentimes quite also form-driven and and um, technological. I think when I was studying, I was not really thinking about climate change because I was not aware of this. In, for me, I think architecture was, I was in this kind of phase where the learning process and uh, nobody talked about it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's always like, you know, 
seeing all these architects is like, you know, getting inspiration and doing things. But when I studied in uh, the studios, I think, again, the studios are dependent on the professors. Like they have this kind of agenda I and mean, then you have to fulfill that requirement. What I meant is like, apart from you doing that, at the same time, you need to also have a second thought. Like, you know, what is you inside? Like, you know, what you want to do? What kind of practice I want to do? How I am teaching? How, what should I do? So that was one part. Like, you know, then when I went back, and I, when I was traveling, after finishing, I was traveling also and uh, reading more things, you know, sketching, you know, trying to understand more architecture. Like, you know, that's where when I went and see the problems, in India, I think then I realized like, you know, just the form making is one part, I think, which is very important, but there are other parts. Designing is one, I think, you know, hundred percent for me is designing one person. There are 99 other things which are very important. And before that, you need to have that knowledge, you need to have that experience. And uh, that is where I think every individual needs to think about. It's not the schools what teaching. It's not the professor who's telling you something. Or, you know, I think it's you, how you are contributing, how are you adding value to your cities is mm-hmm. very much important. And I think for me, that is very important. The contribution uh, to the society is, is very important. And for me, I think doing... Not doing architecture is better than doing a bad build or you know, doing bad architecture. Not building it's, it's itself is an architecture. The moment when you build something, I think it's built for the next 100 years. And uh, I, I, I'm telling you, I wrote my own self some quotes, like, which I really, really follow and you know, try to adapt as much as I can. If you fail to design one good building, it affects three generations. And if you fail to design good urban planning, affects next 100 generations mm-hmm. so i think what kind of design are we doing how we are speculating how are we understanding things and how are we act react and reflecting it's very important i think uh i'm not saying that i'm the perfect but i'm trying to i know mm-hmm. i'm trying to rectify myself correct myself you know because nobody is perfect right so it's always a learning process. You know, keep on trial and error methods. You know, that's the only way. And uh, you make mistake and you don't repeat the mistake. It's very important. If you're doing mistake unknowingly, it's okay. But you know, if you're making the same mistake, then there's some problem. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there are a lot of architects who just do it because they are crisis, because they have to run the show, they have to run the office. And it's especially, in, I have my own friends in India, I think, they do architecture for what client wants. What mm-hmm. The architect wants to do a lot of things, but he can't do it because of so many other reasons. So he has to compromise uh, himself. And, and uh, there, is, there is a big uh, shift now. I think even studying architecture is only becoming for the rich people. It's not a common man course anymore. And uh, the crisis, you know, not much work for architects all over the world. It's going. And I think uh, doing on top, you have so many principles to do good architecture. I think you hardly have any project. So mm-hmm. it's it's very complex. And I think uh, everybody's struggling. Mm-hmm. So that's the way only we can survive and you know, do something good. Mm-hmm. And that's what we studio follow. Like, you know, we don't do much project. We do a lot of speculative designs and this thing. We design in this thing. Most of the projects were like that. Client doesn't have budget. Or, but still, we don't lose hope. Because you mentioned speculative design now, can you maybe explain for our listeners what that is and, and how you how you work with speculative design in your NGO and also it's uh, central in your research, as I understood? I think uh, what we follow, I think, from I think very beginning, we don't know what we're doing as a speculative design in the very beginning. For me, speculative design is what-if scenarios, not just the solutions, but, you know, kind of gives you a further options, I would call it, and see how can you make things better. And for me, that is very important, which can be a catalyst, you know, which can make uh, to rethink the cities. In this collective approach, what we try to do is you do collective research because you bring in people to be part of it. Where you do studies like case studies, 
And the second part is collectively speculate in terms of designing. So in this, what we try to do is that students follow Akilia, but we're joining these workshops where the 10 different architects from different fields, like, you know, different backgrounds in India and Europe are collaborating together, trying to see what are the possibilities. And we did go to the sites, we did a documentation. So what we're trying to understand is put things together and see what can be done. So in this two, three day workshop, what we tend to understood is like instead of one brain working, it's like 100 brains working, you know, 200 hands working together, coming up with the, I think, amazing solutions and amazing ideas together. So we can have an option to choose in a later stage. So then this work would be further taken into the exhibitions to display for the audience, people from other backgrounds, you know, especially the local politicians, you know, visit and see this kind of exhibition and learn from it, like, you know, these are the options. You know. It's not just one person is taking a decision, you know, to have an idea and one person is deciding and doing everything. I think when you do this collective approach, I think there's more transparency. Yeah. There is more clarity in it. And uh, there is always responsibilities also, good or bad, I think, it's, it's on us as a whole team. So that is, for me, uh, it's very important in developing cities. I think now the architecture and urbanism has become more like consultants, more I think it's becoming a corporate. Uh, I think what I'm trying to say is like, now the cities are not being designed by architects anymore or urban designers. This is the, the company like Siemens or, you know, all this superstar companies are on. They're not direct, but they're indirect. And architects are becoming as a concept. If you can bring this kind of collective approach, uh, I think things can change and you know, things can improve a lot. I know it's hard to, maybe there are a lot of questions, how we bring in these people. It's, it's very tough, but if you fail to do bring these people on one page, two things, and it, it goes to you know, longer time, it becomes very difficult. It's very complex and you can't solve situations yeah, there for sure is a change in the role to be seen, and I think um, what you, how you um, explain speculative design, could for sure be a, um, a concept or or like a tool how to, as you say, collectively design something and um, and therefore bring out better solutions in the end. So. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> we just have to, I think, uh, move to climate change a bit. The, yes. <laughs> the main uh, main topic. Exactly, because now you you also talked about um, your research a bit because you you also um, write about or you mentioned speculative design as a approach um, within your research, and then you also um, talk about uh, flooding cities a lot. Yeah. And within your paper, you wrote that um, there, like sea level, is um, one reason that we we are faced with um, flooding cities. And in fact, 300 million people are affected by flooding cities. Um, maybe you can uh, outline what impacts fl- uh, flooding has on cities and um, which places within the world are especially affected. And I think it would also be interesting if you told us um, and, and the listeners how you came to research that specific topic. I think it's very, very interesting. I think this uh, flooding cities, I think flooding cities is no more speculative anymore. It's already happening. It's not happening in one year or it's already happening and we are in we are part of it. And Asian cities are going to be one of the most effective as part of the studies show. I think Europe is also in a big trouble also in US. I think if I say like, you know, New York, Miami, Boston, Mumbai, Kolkata, Shenzhen, Jakarta, there is like list goes of Tokyo. And in this, uh, this thing is like, why coastal? Like, because they are on the edge and due to the climate change and, you know, because of the ice sheet melting, you have this high level of rain and floods coming in and, you know, cities are getting high level amount of water. And in my research, what I am trying to deal with is with two different cities. One is Mumbai and one is Hyderabad. Why Mumbai and Hyderabad? There's a reason. So why Hyderabad? Because I come from Hyderabad. 
uh, is my city. And why Mumbai? Because it's one of the fastest growing city in the world. And it generates almost $2.2 trillion, which is equal twice the GDP of Mexico and Australia. And what we're giving back to the city is very little. You're getting money, but how much you're investing? And people try to move the city, Mumbai city to Navi Mumbai. Somewhere I think people didn't move anymore. Even people are going in Navi Mumbai, I think the people who are in Mumbai are getting more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more reducing down. I think for me, it's very important because how we are culturally rooted, how the inhabitants see their work, they're living there from uh, decades, they're, they have their families, uh, their work is there, and their all of the emotions and the family background. So I think there's no chance they're going to move. So everything is interconnected. The moment when you talk about environment, the, the flora and fauna, the kind of the land it has, like all the topsoil goes, all the kind of this thing goes into the ocean, the salt water, etc. And uh, there is a meteor river within Mumbai. It's also one from the industrial, whatever it is, being dumped directly, just not filtered in. Directly goes not just the river, but also oceans. In this case, what happens is like, you know, this mixture of industrial waste, this kind of water getting really worse. At the same time, cities are spending more money. You will ask me how. This thing, one, people have already built the structure, right? They invested a lot of money. When the flooding happens, it takes away your hotel, which means whatever you build is gone. So, Second is you clean, it costs a lot because you're cleaning the whole city. It's not a small amount of money you're investing. And you're rebuilding again, which means you're spending three times. The moment when you spend three times amount, so how much impact you have in your economy is really at At the same time, it goes to the political. And the political party says that we would like to do this and this. And the government doesn't have a funding because they already invested so much. There are a lot of projects ongoing also. So this is like, you know, interconnected with each of the thing. And the social life fabric is also destroyed. Transportation is kind of problem. Last year, I'm talking about 2020. Uh, maybe you've seen some videos on this. It was so devastating in Mumbai and Hyderabad that even the hospitals, like there's a hospital called JJ Hospital, the water was in the hospital, mm-hmm. literally. And that was in the time of COVID. Can you imagine the situation? You already have a big problem of COVID. the disaster and on top of this flooding is another it's disaster. A catastrophe. It's a but catastrophe and people don't have words to say. They don't know what to say. Every, everybody's in a numb position. Like everybody can't help everybody. Like you know, it's, it's like complex situation. And what can we do in this situation? It's a big question mark. I think the first question I didn't ask to others but I asked myself what am I doing? What is my contribution? Even though I come from Hyderabad, Mumbai is not even close to me, but it's my city, it's my country, right? And it's the same case with the other countries also. So the role of an architect has to change. The role of the thinking has to change. And the schools, academics, uh, institutions have to think about it. And even the the political parties need to think about it. I think even a, a person who's living locally has responsibility. Because climate didn't change in you know, overnight, right? It happened from centuries, and we are all responsible for it. So I think, as an architect, I am super responsible. For it. I think that that is one of the reasons uh, is why I've taken this topic. Because again, I'm, I need to go back to the Hyderabad because there's a connection there. So when we're doing studies for this uh, communities, when we're doing this thinking and ingenuity, uh, we wanted to go and do for slum funding. And there was a huge rain in, I think, in 2018. And we went to this place and, you know, it was so devastating. And uh, they they have in the slums, like, you know, they hardly have space. And they are in this few stones with a cover and that's it. And they have some utensils and that's it. And this rain takes away everything. They have a small home. And I always, always have a question to myself. See, I have a family. I, have, I am good enough. I am well-educated. 
and I have things in my hand which I can do. And they don't have anything, but still they have a hope. So that was like running in my head, and you know, and I have my team. Why don't we do something? At the same time, the university of Edinburgh was doing research on this at the same time. So that was a very important for that to be part of this project. I was part of this project. I was talking about Mumbai and the Jakarta zone. And uh, Hyderabad has lost because in Hyderabad we have lakes and we have Musi uh, River. And the Musi River was built again because of the flooding because there was an engineer who wants to build, build this. Somewhere, like whenever it rains, we don't have a proper drainage system and the lakes are enclosed. Where the water goes, it comes to the city. So these cities are getting really complex. And uh, there is a traffic issues, there is a electricity problems, there is a health issues. People are dying, you know, what happened in 2020 was devastating. Even the same thing, uh, what happened in Mumbai also happened in Hyderabad. And uh, a lot of people lost their life, especially the urban poor who are living in this low-lying area. So the idea came from that situation with the flooding, uh, but also realizing what you spoke about earlier, that the, the sea is actually polluted and the waterways are polluted. So it doesn't quite make sense to continue with the land reclamation. Therefore, it's logical to to push the buildings up, right? Mm -hmm. And so that that's the origin of the floating. Uh, the, one strategy. of the reasons I would say like, this is not the ideal, I would say solution. This is one of the solutions. And a lot of people ask questions like, you know, it's very expensive and absolutely, I think, even I was trying to work with the what the existing material we have, we can build with the steel and you know, concrete, whatever it is. But making a platform, it's possible. Like you know, doing architecture on top, we designed and then it has to think about how are we affecting ecology and how are we affecting the marine ecosystem. There are other challenges also. And I would I would think, say like you know, land reclamation is one of the problem because yeah, you you're bringing the land from somewhere else. Right, you're bringing the sand, you know, the construction investment you're doing, and there's no guarantee that you know the, what what you have done there is going to stay there, <laughs> because the setting time takes time, you know, the amount of uh, material you need is enormous. So the local ecology and the ecosystem changes based on that, because you're adding something new to it, and uh, building on top will not solve your problem because the water is rising. You know, you can't adding your uh, land to keep on adding. And people also question me, like, you know, why don't they retreat from there? Again, the question is, people don't move from there place because they belong there. And uh, retreat is uh, not a solution. And uh, there is one drawing I made uh, from the paper, maybe seen it, in that, like, what the UN is thinking about it. Like, anyway, I think you can make it still, and you can still, there's another option, traditional way of architecture. It's also kind of floating. It's not just floating, it's a buoyancy. And that's also possible. Uh, that's also uh, an option we have. And there's another option we have, floating platforms. Mm -hmm. So there is a traditional methodology, there is a technology what we have. I think it has to go hand in hand, come up with the new ideas. So one of the reasons why I'm trying to bring the speculative city has to be thought in a holistic way. Yeah. And uh, it has to start, I would say, it's a local, at a community level, and it has to go to global. And the global go again go to the local. So when you, for example, when you do a workshop with the, the local architects and this thing, you can always bring in the outside architects because they're thinking, right? They're speculating together. So we can work together and we can think about these issues and come up with the probable possible strategies and scenarios and then put back to the global platform, you know, back to give it to the, the people there. And I think you can get back again from that. So, it has to be in a two-way process instead of doing a singular process. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think uh, speculative design and the land recognition, I think these things has to be well thought of. And it has to be in a community, a decentralized way, not a centralized way. More, and more people are being aware that climate change is happening and we can feel the consequences and 
Um, I was quite shocked to, in the documentary, climate change, living on the water, you said that Jakarta, um, the, the capital of Indonesia, um, will have to think about, uh, or they will have to find solutions because they have such severe problems with flooding. And then I Googled a bit about it and I read that, um, the Jakarta, um, it sinks between five and 10 centimeters every year. Um, and that was due to sea level rise, but also overuse of groundwater. That, that number was so shocking to me. And um, now I was wondering how will they manage? And because you said they have to think about eventually moving the whole city or to move the capital out of Jakarta. How will they do that? I think uh, it's, it's, even I don't have an answer for that right now. Yeah. Because, uh, yes, this Jakarta is sinking because they tapped all the groundwater and the land has become so porous and the ocean water is penetrating. And, you know, it's kind of sinking because you're taking out some, destroying the whole city. And, you know, I think I've seen some pictures, like even the prime minister house was in flooded. So just imagine like how the situation is. And this has to be well thought of. People living on water it's not new, it's already there. Because the moment when we say floating architecture, it's like, you know, something new. People are living, in Indonesia, mm. people were living on water, like in the boats, houses. Even in India, Kerala, if you go there, boats, people live on this. And I think even if you see Venice, was also flooding now. Like, people are living on this thing. I think what we need is like, we need to come up with the new strategies, we need to come up with the new ideas. And coming back to the Indonesia, Jakarta, they have to, I think it's already late somehow, but Moving the whole city would be really expensive. And I think I don't think Indonesian government has that much amount to do that as a funding. And the moment if it, they start building a new place, there's no guarantee that the city gonna survive or you know, mm -hmm. the city gonna run the same way what they're thinking about. And I think they have to come up with the adaptive plan. They have to start thinking about how they're gonna deal with this. Maybe the floating architecture would be one option. And building on a stilt could be another option. And uh, coming up with the, the new strategies would open up new doors. To yeah, because moving the city or moving homes seems like a very short-term solution. And then maybe you're right that we have to rethink and really work with the flooding and um, have ideas on... Um, yeah, we, we offer a long term how, how we can um, design in a way that it's adapted to this um, consequences of climate change. And yeah, maybe floating structures uh, are a possible solution. But as you said before, of course, they're um, right now quite expensive. And then uh, we have the we are in a pandemic now. Many people are um, suffering from poverty even more than before. And then, of course, it will be a question of who is it accessible for and um, yeah, how to build that amount of floating structures. And then again, it probably has a impact on, on the, the whole ecosystem living under the water. So as you said, the, it's not a perfect solution, but it might be something to consider. And in a way, I mean, moving the whole city is just uh, a larger scale version of what, what you described as, retreating uh, so it's not not the best idea but i'm thinking as well going back to what you said at the beginning about uh, vernacular architecture vernacular building and especially also as you mentioned that in indonesia and in india people already do live on the water so there's a, a wealth of knowledge there uh, that could be harnessed um, and uh, even the slums as you spoke about the slum specifically as a um, an affected part of the city when floods do occur. Um, I, I did my bachelor's project in Daravi uh, and stayed there for a month. Uh, so I remember from that time some, some bits and pieces. And one thing I found interesting is, which is the case for, for all slums in the world, basically, is that they tend to be um, self-built. Um, sometimes they are upgraded over time, of course, but at its basis, they are self-built. So there could be something to harness there to not to not make it too large scale, but to harness the knowledge that does exist and actually involve the people which you spoke about before. I, I totally agree. I think there are some few points you pointed out, like one about the especially urban poor affected 
think have been that will be quite sometimes like you know visiting the place going around sorry not only just come but i was visiting all of the spots and i think uh the situations were they go through and a lot of people try to move out move them out like a lot of people try to move them out put somewhere else and they build that new housing for them and like low income group or middle income group whatever they try to build outside and they never want to go because there is no life there and mm-hmm. because they the whole work is there like all the slums of the slums have they recycle everything they they have this uh, self employed and they work in their uh, small space what they have and you know they kind of change the space in a different ways and they don't time space and activity and you're freaking out that there is no life and they have to commute to come to this place you know, for hours like the people are staying they're given outside of the mumbai mm-hmm. and they have to cover two to three hours to come who will come commute for three hours in that time the energy and the money you're putting there is no life so eventually what they do is like whatever they offer they say yes and they come back to the solution the growth has please i think in mumbai they have every month uh, every day i think they have some million people or 2 million people in spare most of them who don't go out because they, mm-hmm. actually, they want to have a job and the livelihood is there and uh, i think a lot of projects try to go it's not going to work i think you have to build within the slums then taking out the slums there is an options like you know investors who who bought the property on the business in mumbai are not just from mumbai and india but they are from outside mm-hmm. the company for investing i think there's a possibility that they can build this floating platform invest in that same time they kind of for example like they generate energy out new new ideas like you know there is uh, uh, i met uh, recently in aviana binale uh, i was listening to this lecture his, his name was uh, antonio scorpio uh and he was uh doing this it's called uh he's doing an urban farm where the farming happens based on the urine and uh it's kind of uh, aquaponic uh, method and he's using the rooftops for storing this land like you know in the in urban places you have only rooftops right so he's putting this containers and he's kind of uh, having this uh idea of making this you carbon farming in this in these places and it's trying to use indoor facades for going the new ideas how you grow things like similarly i think all these ideas could be brought onto this uh, floating platforms that like, you know and and i think people have a also big question about this question mark of sustainability which i totally understand because that has become an, sustainability was already there i think this name is coming new because need something new right so people are selling products out of in the name of bio in the name of nature natural medicine i think it's very important like you know sustainability is already there from centuries i think how we use it and before that we need to have this speculative design so i think there are a lot of options and i think there's interesting book i think of fits it's called critical care there's a very interesting book they have done a lot of case studies i think one uh they're talking about the venice project uh they mentioned about the about pakistan bangladesh africa and maybe you know the the floating school in africa mm-hmm. they're trying to build this so there are already good examples in bangladesh also there is the middle of this uh community space which is also flooding it in mumbai so in, in bangladesh uh which was also very interesting project to look at it. the architect what they did he took the whole he built the whole of this complex under the, under the ground like you know digging down so what he created he kind of created a mound outside and what he created is like the whole water goes and it's kind of a pond you're creating outside and you're building inside i think it's a very interesting project i think maybe you can check that project i think uh, that is very interesting project and also the pakistan uh, sindh flood rehabilitation uh, project is one then i think uh, then if you look at alexander arwana what he did for the chili project uh, there the whole city was kind of flooded they have to redesign the whole thing they were talking to the fishermen that it was so complex project but still uh, i still remember i was listening to his lecture he mentioned that 
they have to think about how to supply water in that conditions to the people. So what they did is like, you know, they have this tube where kids play. Maybe any of you have seen this. But they, they filled this uh, tube with the water bottles and the kids were kind of uh, pulling this wheel and uh, giving these water bottles to the community. Mm-hmm. So they have to come up with the ideas to, to you know, serve the people. And I think the Arctic role has changed. I think we have to think beyond architecture. Mm-hmm. In some cases, we have to cut down the projects which are not relevant, you know, which is relevant. We have to put money in that. And I think we have to revisit on, on, on how things should be made. And that is very crucial in making cities. I know we don't have budget. I know there is a crisis. But still, we have to come onto the common grounds and mm-hmm. give priority to what we need. I think that's where I always say, like, you know, academics play key role at the same time, the practice plays key role. And the people are very important in building and participating in doing projects. Yeah, that was a a very good, I think we have to come to an end. And I think it was a a great end, actually, because you had such a, um, you were giving such fantastic examples, what is already happening. And I think it's, um, when I speak about climate change, it often gets very depressing. And I think it's always nice to end with something where you actually um, mention so many good examples. And we don't, as planners and architects, we don't have to um, reinvent the wheel all the time. We can also look at what is already there and build upon that. And I think um, that was a fantastic end. I would like to thank again. It was a wonderful and this thing. I think this topics has to be discussed more often. I think it's not just in a, a schools or you know kind of lecture, but I think this has to go into the people. It's how we can reach more uh, and you know think about it in more collective way and uh, make uh, good sustainable cities, you know, more vegetarian cities. So that's what I would say. And let's keep doing it from your yeah. podcast. Let's be do it from our NGO, Thinking Hand NGO and uh, Kate of Zeddy's too.